How do you know the life or personal coach you are about to work with is who they say they are? How do you know if they can do the job? At the Africa Board for Coaching, Consulting and Coaching Psychology, we can tell you. So, before you share your secrets and spend your money, check with us first. Visit www.abccp.com or call us on 012-751-7608. The ABCCP, the professional... More music, more inspiration, Harley Davidson. There are no words. Hi there, and welcome to Healthcare Hour with Colin Crystal. I'm hoping that you're all doing well and that you're managing the load shedding and you're knowing that we can do this. We are tough and we can overcome. More about the show. Healthcare Hour is all about healthcare, quite clearly. And it's about healthcare professionals. It's about all of us who at some point in our lives need healthcare. But it's also taking the mystery out of healthcare. It's taking quite frankly, the hero out of healthcare, because often when we treat our healthcare professionals as heroes, we end up realizing or thinking that they're not human. And indeed, they are human. And we need to bring in more human into healthcare, into medical, into care. And that goes both ways. It's not only human uh, for patients, but also human for the people who are looking after the patients. More about me. I am a master coach. I'm a master mentor. Healthcare is my home. I feel very strongly about healthcare and that it impacts all of us. Today's guest, um, probably you may have heard her name. You may have been sitting on an airplane and read an excerpt from her books. And her name is Dr. Anne Bickard. She has written two books, which I'm going to tell you more about after the break. And we're going to meet her and we're going to unpack her life and we're going to find out why she wrote these books. But let's pop out for that break. Dad, where do babies come from? Dad, stop. Think. This is a huge important question in your daughter's life and needs to be handled delicately. Too much information will lead to a lifetime of therapy. Not enough information will also lead to a lifetime of therapy. But you do need to respond with honesty and confidence. Think. What would Elliot do? Hmm. You should ask Mommy. That's her department. Smooth move, Dad. Smooth move. For well-considered smooth moves, Elliot is amazing. You're listening to Fuga Online Radio. Hi there, and welcome back to Healthcare Hour with Colin Quist. My guest today is Dr. Anne Bickard. She is the author of two books, Saving a Stranger's Life, The Diary of an Emergency Room Doctor, and also Holding My Breath, Further Exploits of an ER Doctor. More about Anne. She is a medical doctor who lives and works in Johannesburg, South Africa. She studied psychology and then medicine at the University of the Witwatersrand, or WITS, as we all know it as. And she lives with her partner on a small farm where they provide a home to rescue greyhound and some other creatures, which I'm sure she's going to tell us all about. So, Anne, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Hello and welcome, and uh, thanks for inviting me. 
Pleasure. Okay, so let's hear about you start off with. Um, how did you get, you know, what was your journey into being a doctor? Um, so it was a bit of a convoluted one. I didn't uh, study medicine when I left school. Um, I actually went, initially thought I was going to study law and did a, an, um, a de- um, <clears throat> basically a bachelor's degree in English and psychology and law. Um, but medicine was always my sort of first passion. I then went on to do masters, honors and masters in psychology. And in the back of my mind, I kind of always thought, you know, I should be a doctor. I shouldn't have taken this path. So I thought, well, I can either spend the rest of my life saying should have, could have, would have, or I can go back to the beginning. So I applied to medical school and got in and went all the way back seven years later to first year and studied medicine. So as a student for a long time, it was probably 13, 13 years or so. And um, I definitely think that was the right thing for me to do. I think it was a it was a convoluted route, but I think the right the right one for me. And then, um, and it also shows us as well that it's never too late to change paths. But it's also not about going back to the beginning. You you started your medical path with all the knowledge that you'd had up until that point. Yes, it, it it was interesting though because it's a totally different way of thinking. You know, medicine is is very much. Um, sort of fact-based, whereas the arts is much more interpretive and it's a completely different way of thinking and answering questions. So it was it was a bit of an adjustment. Um, but I think that the knowledge that I had from, certainly from studying psychology, stood me in very good stead, um, not really at medical school, but after I qualified and even to this day. And also the people that I met, you know, on that first round in, in university years, remain good friends and remain um, totally different from the people that I've met in, in medicine. So that made me, I think, a lot more balanced and a lot more able to see both sides of, of, of things. Um, medicine is very, you, you kind of can't just pull it out of your hat, you know. You have to sit down and learn it. Yeah. There's no way you're going to think up 10 causes of renal failure if you haven't read the book, you know. <laughs> you can't just wing it. No, there's no winging it. <laughs> and people who, who <laughs> you, you just, it's not possible. You know, you have to, you have to learn it and you have to, it's like building blocks. If you don't understand the first principle, you're not going to manage to understand the second principle. And if you're going to try and remember everything just by rote learning and not understanding the physiology or the, or the kind of pathways underneath that you, it just can't work. You know, you have to get the basics right. So it was an interesting, interesting, different way of looking at things. You know, just, you know, not to say that you wing it in the arts, but it's a different, it's a totally different way of, of thinking about things. Yes, and uh, medicine is very much about problem solving. And as you said, once we found the, ne- the one piece, it, it reminds me almost of the, you know, the, is your name Colleen? Yes or no, or maybe and you know you then follow the next like part of the of the convolution of okay where are we going yeah it's 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 kind of everything has to fit together and i think that that's what makes certainly working in the ed quite a challenge because anything can come through the door um any kind of illness any kind of injury any Thing from a woman giving birth to a man having a heart attack to a person who fell off the roof, you know, 
and somebody with an infectious disease or whatever. So you have to kind of put things together. You have to have a kind of working algorithm in your head and have a clear way to get a history and what you're dealing with. Otherwise, you, you go down the wrong path and then you're only, you're only seeing what you're looking for, you know. So it's, it's, a, it's a definitely fitting together the parts of a puzzle. And if one part doesn't fit, then you're on the wrong track, you know. You have to go back and rethink it. Um, and I, I often tease the younger doctors and say there's no such thing as coincidence in medicine. Because they're like, well, maybe that's just a coincidence. And I'm like, mm, when you say that, we're missing the diagnosis. <laughs> it's like, you just can't, you know, if there's a temperature, there's got to be an infection. You can't go down another route. You have to think about that, you know. So yeah, it's, just, it's just a different way of thinking, I guess. And yes, so bringing back to the basics of saying that all our puzzle pieces have to fit and they have to fit well, we can't just force them. And oh dear, well, this one's missing. Um, you know, never mind, we'll throw that one away um, and just carry on going. Yeah, I mean, that, it's ex exactly that. It's, it's um, and you have to do the, the, the sort of basics. And I also, one of my favorite phrases that I, I tease people with is uh, no act of kindness goes unpunished. And um, so what, what people try and do is, you know, save money for somebody who says they don't have medical aid or they haven't got any money. So they, they skip out a step because they don't want the patient to have to pay for that step. But that step is there for a reason, you know. So if the patient has chest pain, they need to get an ECG. And you can't make it about whether they can afford the ECG or not because then you try and reroute it and not do it and that will be the patient that's having the heart attack you know it just works like that so you just have to say this is the approach that I take and I'm not going to let somebody dissuade me from that because they're in a hurry to get to the airport and so they don't have time for blood tests you know make a make a path around that say to them fine give me your cell phone number I'll phone you in 40 minutes then um, but don't say okay we'll leave the blood test then because those are the ones the ones that get missed, you know. So it's almost the parts that you miss, the parts that you think, okay, well, we'll skip those for the day. Those are the ones that come back to haunt you. Exactly. That's the that's the one. The one that you don't do is the one that you look back and go, oh, if I'd only just done that test, you know, the the answer would have been obvious. So, and I mean, obviously, it's 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 you learn something new every day, you know. So. You know, I've got a fair amount of experience, which makes it nice to to teach younger people. But they also teach me stuff, you know. So that's, oh, yes. that's well, the, certainly two ways, two way street yeah. now. Yes, what I, can you gather? What can you give? Yeah, exactly. And I mean, that's the the thing about the ED is is that you know there's always something new to learn, something to read up on. You know, there there's pretty much no way you're going to know everything ever. So that's quite nice because you, you're always learning and always, you know, that, that keeps your mind open. And I think that's great. Okay. And then, as you said as well, very much the type of personality that you are grounded in your experience, you're grounded in, in your knowledge and what you know. But as you said, whatever walks in the door, it walks in the door. And you've got to be prepared to go one of 600 routes, I'm sure, of saying, okay, where are you going? But it's not... You know, you can never be prepared for what's walking in the door, but I'm sure that you prepared in your knowledge. Yeah, so so there, there, there's a huge amount of training for sort of real emergency situations. So, 
you know, if you have like a, a person who's not breathing or, you know, whatever, that, that somebody comes sort of flying in with a, a child who's drowned, whatever, you have a, an algorithm to follow. So because when you in a situation of, of everybody panicking, you you have to have practiced certain steps. And that's that's very helpful to have done that training and done all of those those kind of um algorithms over and over and over in your head until it's almost automatic. So that that part of emergency medicine is is very much algorithm driven. Um but and that's when a patient is what we'd call unstable. So you know things are unfolding and you've literally got seconds or minutes to address whatever the underlying cause is, you know. Um, but once a person is more stable and you now are hunting for a reason for their abdominal pain or whatever, you've got time to backtrack and rethink and recheck and maybe go down a different route. The basic life support route is is pretty much predetermined for you, you know, so you 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 have to practice that because if you don't practice it when it when you need it you're gonna forget steps. You know? So it's important Sometimes what I'm hearing you saying is is that it has to be practiced so often that it's habit. It's like brushing your teeth. It's something you don't have to think about. It comes out of you without you know it's not what was the step again now? Let me think. It it must be second nature. Yeah so I think there are two important things. The one is that you you have to know where you which sort of thing to address first so if you start worrying about you know something else and the patient's not breathing you, you that's the wrong you know you they have to first of all be breathing and then secondly they have to have you know a pulse and thirdly they have to be you know using that oxygen and the blood to best advantage so the the basics you know the abc literally airway breathing and circulation you have to be able to address sort of immediately but you have to have a team that you know how to work with and you have to know where your equipment is and how to use it and I think that that's a, a problem for doctors who move around from one hospital to another because you know if you're working with a team of people you don't know their names they don't really know your name um, you say to them do you have this equipment and they say yes and you don't check that they do and then suddenly you need the equipment and they look in the drawer and it's not there that's when things go wrong, you know. So that's why you have a you have a team and you have a you know a kind of set way of doing everything every day that two people check every single piece of equipment, check that it's working, check that the battery's not flat, and nine times out of ten you won't need to use it. But the one time out of ten when you need the equipment, you, you it has to be equipment you know how to use. So that's a it's a, it's a thing that's changed a lot, you know. 10, 20 years ago, when they hadn't done sort of studies on things like why pilots make errors, et cetera, why resuscitations go wrong, um, they didn't realize that a lot of it is about communication and about practicing and going through sequences so that everybody knows what everybody else is doing and there's a system of communicating and you know that when you say to somebody, please bring me X, they know what you're talking about and they're going to get it as opposed to just running out the room because they don't know what you want, you know. So yeah, it's it's, a, it's all a right. So yes, very very much so that it all flows. Yeah. Okay, so let's flow into a break, and then when we come back, we're going to hear why Dr. Bickard wrote her books, why she allowed us to come to work with her every day. A very fascinating going to work every day, 
but let's go for that break. The roads have emptied, only us left, kids sleeping in back. Cat's eyes shine bright, white lines roll by, the rhythm of the streetlights. Radio hums quietly, rain starts, hypnotic wipers. Pulling, hot latte and apple pie, ease back into the darkness. Over 600 McDonald's open 24 hours. We are awake. Vuga, it's time to wake up. Welcome back. You tuned to Healthcare Hour with Colleen Quist. My guest today is Dr. Anne Bickard, who has allowed her in allowed us into her emergency department or ED as she calls it, um, to see what what it's like because she's written books. And we're gonna find out now, you know, thank you, um, Dr. Anne. Why did you write these books? Um, well, I, I'm, I think I'm naturally a storyteller. So I often tell people stories about what happens in the ED. And sometimes people ask me, how do I make all the stuff up? And the answer is I actually don't. It's all absolutely true. Um, just maybe different, you know, gender, different age group, whatever. But essentially all the stories and all of the books are true stories. Um, so I used to kind of tell stories about this and that. And people often said to me, you should write a book. But I think when COVID came along, I wanted to keep a record of what, so I had written sort of a few of the excerpts before that, but um, I wanted to keep a, a kind of a record or a diary of what it was like for us at that time. Um, you know, what what it was like before COVID, our first COVID case, when we sort of thought it was going to arrive and we were ready and waiting and then it didn't come. And um the kind of preparations and fear and pandemonium that went on, you know, when I read back on that, it feels like another life, you know, when you think back of the first lockdown, three weeks seemed like a long time, you know. Um, I think it's it's really valuable to remember what it was like for us over those years as a team, um, yeah, none of us knew what was going to happen, you know. I think we're still not really clear what happened. <laughs> um, but uh, so, so, so it was just to keep a record, I guess, of, of things. I mean, I started initially trying to write a kind of handbook for um, some of the younger doctors in a more accessible way, but I found myself wandering off into storytelling rather than just handbook material, you know. Um, so yeah, so it, it it sort of evolved from a yes, from but a we do evolve from the story. You know, I mean, they're always telling us now tell the story, and I'm seeing how you're bringing in your other part of your life now. You know, where you were studying English, where you're also bringing that into and the psychology. So it's almost like you've combined your original life with this life, but also allowing us to see, allowing us to experience. Um, and then what I also found fascinating is, as you know, when you look back, it's easy to see COVID, but, you know, through what we know now. But, you know, reading your book, it was almost like, oh, yes, oh, we didn't know this yet. And we didn't know that yet. And we didn't, you know, so it was literally, as you said, capturing the time, that exact time, not looking back at it. Yeah, I think that that's a really important thing. I mean, even 
working in the ED, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. You know, and then in the morning when you've got all the blood results, you can look back and go, oh, obviously that's what's wrong with the patient. But at the time when you're faced with the unfolding scenario, you, you don't know what's going to happen next. And, I mean, we didn't know. I can't say I know now why is some COVID pneumonias went the way they went. I mean, there are lots of theories, but there's no definite answer, you know. Um, but, yes, at least now we kind of can look back at it. But what you, your perspective changes. You can never change it back to one of naivety. You know, it's what you've learned, you've learned, and you can never unlearn it. So I'm really glad that I wrote down where I was then because now I can see where I am now, and it, it really is a difference. Yeah, so thank you for sharing that with us. What I was also seeing, I'm just checking that I haven't frozen. You look okay to me? Uh, okay. <laughs> All right. Mm. Um, what I've noticed as well with emergency medicine is, is that it's very much that you often do the beginning of the, the patient's journey. And you, you're not there for the end. You're not there for, okay, because you're referring. Yeah. Yeah, so you do try, and I mean, I do try and follow up, um, especially with patients that were sort of touch and go. Um, if the patient stays in our hospital, that's pretty easy for me because I'm, I'm very friendly with the people I work with. So I'll send them a WhatsApp or whatever, saying what happened, you know, or if I see them in the tea room or whatever. So... Um, the patients that get transferred away, you know, the, the pediatric ICU patients and, and um, patients that can't be managed at our hospital because we don't have those facilities, those are difficult to follow up on because um, often they, they get handed over from the doctor that you refer them to to the next person. And so you, you kind of lose touch um, with them. And obviously if you phone the hospital and you don't know the person who's working there, they won't tell you anything about the patient. Um, which they shouldn't because there's, you know, it's confidential information. So, so sometimes it is difficult to find out how people did. Um, sometimes people come back to the ED. I had uh, one guy who, who brings a bottle of red wine every year on the anniversary of my shocking his heart. <laughs> and, um, you know, that kind of thing is nice. You know, it's nice when somebody comes back and says, thank you. You know, and, um, mostly people's sort of input is, about what went wrong rather than what went right. And it's really nice to hear back from families, you know, when things did work out well. I mean, obviously, if they didn't work out well, not to say we don't want to hear that, but it's really nice to hear that all of the work you put in did actually change the course of someone's life, you know. So that's so important, Anne, as well, because, you know, when I was reading the book, or, you know, you write so well that I wasn't reading the book, I was actually living your your day with you and there was no reading in it I was literally running down the passage with you um and you know often I would find like oh but let's go down the passage let's go find out what happened to that patient and then I was seeing no but the nature of emergency medicine is you don't necessarily go with you get to a stage and you hand over and yes as you said you might find out later but so it's also a very specific personality that can do that yeah then, I think it's yeah. kind of like an ADD kind of thing. It, it's it's like the best doctors that I've found that work in emergency medicine, are, they really do have like a mild attention deficit. So they can pay attention to what's happening now, 
but then they must be able to move on to the next thing. Because if you're still busy thinking about the patient you saw previously, you're not going to be thinking properly about the patient you're seeing now. In fact, I, I work with a, a really fabulous guy who I call the calligrapher in the books. And I mean, he literally sits on a different chair every single time he sits down. He goes, he sits at the nurse's station, he goes to the reception, he sits on the patient waiting thing. He just is so restless. You know, he's like, he needs sort of constant new input, you know. So he's constantly, he doesn't have like a place. Like I've got my little desk and I put my stuff down there, you know, and I'm I'm sort of established there, whereas he's he's all over the show. And that's the way he is. But when he's with a patient, he's completely focused. I mean, he's like completely focused on what's going on with that patient. He gets the patient to ICU, another patient comes in and he's completely focused on that patient. And you have to do that because otherwise, certainly when I was a student, I I would sort of forget people because they'd go to the ward and then the ward was full, so they'd go to another ward. And then you'd sort of go through your papers after 24 hours and you'd go, oh, my goodness, I haven't checked on this patient. I actually completely forgotten about the patient. There are too many things to do. So eventually, after a while, you get like a system. So I put the notes in a particular order and I put the files in different places for what I'm waiting for so that you can keep tabs on things but still be focusing on what you're currently doing. It's, a, it's like a, you either like that kind of thing or it drives you crazy. And so it's, you know, you have spent uh, a lot of years in ED, in the in the emergency, and do you believe then that you know burnout is big for other people? Um, I think it's a very difficult department to work in because it it requires different skill levels. So you'll get people who are like very good at acting on emergencies, um, but they don't actually like engaging with people so half of the people that come to the ed are coming there for like general practice things they've got a sore ear or they've sprained their ankle or whatever so if the doctor sort of feels like they're an emergency room specialist and they should only be seeing you know uh, extreme poisonings or heart attacks or you know brittle end-stage asthma or whatever and they don't want to waste their time with people with a sore throat then they get very dismissive and sort of rude to those patients and you know all of the patients deserve to get good care whether they come with something that you regard as silly or not so I think it's a I think it's you you have to be able to enjoy people for who they are but also be able to cut off in a way and be very practical when you need to be so you can't be just like a person who just wants to engage and chat because then when you have a drowning, it's too much. You know what I mean? If you you have to now tell the family that, that their child is gone, that's if you're going to be the kind of person that's a very people's person, you, it, it, you exactly, you'll burn out, you won't cope. You will go down that road once or twice in your life and you'll say, I can't do this job. You know, it's it's too horrible, you know? So I think it's finding, so the, the, finding the middle road. You know, the, the middle road of being empathetic and there but also being able to be professional and and um objective i suppose so i think a lot of healthcare professionals are not taught how to care but then disconnect yeah it's very because it's much easier and even you know with body language the other day i was speaking to somebody and i was like i'm i can feel that i'm completely 
I've folded my arms and I can feel my body language is completely defensive. And it's, it's only because I have to give this person bad news. You know, it's, it's natural in a way. If you aren't aware of it, you're never going to change it, you know. And it's very difficult to, to be um, emotionally open in, in that kind of situation. I mean, it won't be the first time that I've cried in front of a patient. The first time I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to cry. <laughs> Absolutely devastated, you know. And now I'm just like, well, you know, it's objectively sad and I'm sorry, you know. And if I find it sad, then if a little tear runs down my face, I'll just wipe it off, you know. There's no shame in actually caring, you know. But that's taken been a long road to get to that. Okay, so let's go for that next break. And then we're going to talk about, do we want doctors who cry? Quite frankly, I think we do want doctors who cry. But let's have that break first. No one decides to go into debt. It creeps up on you. Slowly. Debt follows debt. Follows debt. Unless you do something about it. Face your debt problems before they cripple you. It's time to do something. Vuga, it's time to wake up with Vuga Online. Welcome back. You tuned to Healthcare Hour with Colleen Quist. Today's guest is Dr. Anne Bickard. She is an ED doctor, which means she works in emergency rooms. She works with trauma. She sees all different patients that come in as life-threatening, sometimes not life-threatening, sometimes it's the sore throat. It's very much about how she says we need to be able to connect and face whatever's coming in the door and need to have practiced so often that the standard steps come as habits. You don't have to think about them. So, and let's look more about doctors who do care, who have empathy but are able to protect themselves, you know, without putting up the wall, but very much about being able to connect. But at the end of the day, don't take the patient home. Yeah, you know, I think COVID was a real eye-opener for us. And, uh, people have often said to me, what, have we, what, what did we do wrong in COVID? And I can tell you one thing that I think we did wrong um, or incorrectly was we cut patients off from their families. And I think that that was because we were trying to keep their families safe and also because to be honest, we were absolutely overwhelmed. And so the, the patients would come into the hospital and there would be nobody interacting with the family. They, we didn't have, we had too many patients and we didn't have enough time to phone family and give them feedback, etc. And I think that that was really a, a terrible thing to happen to people that they, especially the older people would literally be like scooped away at the door, onto oxygen, up to ICU, on a ventilator, they never got to say goodbye or got to spend time with them. And that was, in retrospect, probably unnecessary. Um, because if you'd asked the patients, they all would have exposed themselves to the risk of COVID in order to see the person who they were living with in any case when they brought them in. You know, so so I'm not really sure, you know, how we exactly logistically would have done that differently. But um certainly during COVID. I um, saw a different side of a lot of the doctors that I worked with. And and the one was that was true empathy for people's families. And the other was, you know, just frankly, courage. You know, 
there were a lot of doctors who got sick, a lot of uh, quite a few colleagues that actually died from COVID. So we knew that that was a possibility. And yet, um, I think in, in in my first book, I wrote about the the orthopod and the and the dermatologist who who rocked up and said, "We've come to help," you know, and. Um, they probably hadn't seen a, a patient clinically and certainly not put a patient on a ventilator or managed a patient in ICU for a good 20 years. But they're still doctors and they can still write the prescriptions. And if you look at, you know, we were, say, admitting 30, 40 people a day with COVID, each person was on 20 medications. Just writing out those medications takes a lot of time, you know. So if they can just come and help us to write the scripts for the ward, you know, to phone the patient's families back, to check for allergies, to do the basic vitals on the patient, that takes a huge amount of load of the one doctor that's trying to manage all of those patients coming in, getting them onto the ventilators, et cetera. So, um, so yeah, I think that, I think my opinion of, of, of my, not that I've had a bad opinion of my colleagues, but my opinion of the healthcare team was really, really, I was really impressed with how everybody stood together. I mean, now we see the fallout of that. There's certainly like a lot of post-traumatic stress, a lot of people with like generalized anxiety, that kind of thing that, that we see now sort of after, after the fact. During the, the, the sort of, especially the third wave, which was the worst wave, in my opinion, I think in, in everyone's opinion, the healthcare workers just were just unbelievable. They just came to work, did their jobs, sat there in that PPE. It was unbearable. They, they were fantastic, you know. And I think it's also important for us to, to see they went beyond. But it's also about saying that there is a toll, that we are, they are all people. You know, they bleed, they get tired, they need to go to the bathroom. Um, and yeah. so it's also about where to from there. How do we, how do we heal? How, how also do we move forward from that of like the collaboration, the working together? We're here for an aligned goal. What are we doing together? Um, and that how do we bring more humanity into medicine? Yeah, I mean, it's really difficult because the, the nursing profession is much more connected to the patients, in my opinion, than, than, than doctors are. So doctors sort of have this sort of age-old kind of thing of they sort of come along and they're the sort of kingpin and then the nurses do the work. And I mean, that's just nonsense. You know, the, the nurses often know much more what's going on with the patients than the doctors do. And they are much more connected to the patients, much more empathetic about the patient. They often find out more about the patient, you know. So that's been an interesting change for me that certainly over the last few years, I've started asking patients more questions about what sort of was really going on for them. And um, it's been interesting for me because mostly the, the, the nurse will give me the history and I just go on that. Um, and in the last sort of couple of years, I found, especially after COVID, I'll spend a little bit longer with the patient, just get to know them a bit, bit better. And then I'll say to the nurse, did you know that, you know, actually whatever about this patient's history? And they, it's interesting to see how um, it, people answer what you ask. So if you, if you come with a set of questions and you just want the facts, you know, they'll give you the facts. But if you spend a bit longer, you'll find out 
things that maybe is the motivation for the patient to be there. But if you didn't ask that question, it would never have come up. You know, so you spend a bit longer and then they say, well, you know, I'm worried I might have this and this and this from this and this because somebody in my family died of it and whatever. So I think the COVID's kind of, yeah, it's, it's made us all appreciate life certainly a lot more and appreciate being well a lot more because it was like you couldn't hide away the fact that anyone could get it and everybody across the board was vulnerable. And um, you just got to spend a bit more time and get to know people. I think also during the COVID time, you didn't want to spend time in the patient's room because they were sick. So even with PPE, you were in and out there, you know. That's actually why I named the second book Holding My Breath because I had an older patient who had their medication inside the room. They had COVID and I'd already taken off my PPE. And I was like, oh, I have to get that bag of medication because I have to write it down. So I literally took a deep breath and ran into the room and grabbed the bag and ran out, put it on the on the thing. And I looked up and my favorite physician was standing there and he said, you were holding your breath, weren't you? And I was like, yep. And he said, you're still going to get COVID. <laughs> you know? yeah. He was right. <laughs> but holding your breath was, yes, instead of putting on all that PPE again. Exactly. And then, you know, now uh, we're still seeing patients with COVID and literally wear a little mask, you know. I don't know. It's very strange. The rules sort of change and everybody changes. And now, like, nobody seems to be wearing masks anywhere at all anymore. It's like they've just forgotten that it exists, even though we are actually still seeing cases in the hospital. Yeah, sometimes so I, I arrive that. somewhere and I go, oh, where's my mask? Where's my Oh, no, no, no mask. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I keep my mask in the casualty because I've just always felt it's a nice thing to, um, first of all, it's it's good to keep, anything like influenza or whatever slightly less exposed to it wearing a mask but the other thing is it conceals what you really think sometimes so if you're trying not to um laugh at something you can hide your face better under a mask just sort of look (laughs) down (laughs) okay so let's go for that last break and then when we come back we're going to hear about snoopies and also are there more books Where are you? Are you in bed? Or are you leaving the first human footprint on Mars? Are you jogging? Or are you about to pull off the heist of the century? Are you in your car? Or are you praying those red eyes in the darkness can't see you? A voice in your ear can take you anywhere. Audible. Get your first audiobook for free and feel every word. Seven ninety nine a month after thirty day trial starts automatically. Terms apply. You're listening to Vuga Online Radio. Welcome back. You tuned to Healthcare Hour with Pauline Quist. You are tuned to Vuga Online Radio, your inspiration radio station. Dr. Anne Bickard, who is an emergency room or emergency department ED doctor, she's with us and she's written two books and she's been sharing why she wrote the books. And also in those books, she spoke very much about her rescue greyhounds that are called Snoopies. And I'm sure anyone who's who has read her books would murder me if I didn't ask about the Snoopies. Yeah, those yeah, Snoopies are very expensive things because they have got too much gas and no brakes. Uh, 
engines. So they are very fast and they have no fat on them. And um, when they collide with things like gateposts or trees, which they do regularly, um, they manage to do the most horrendous injuries to themselves. And as I say this, I'm sitting looking at the blue Snoopy, who is at least the red Snoopy, who is the prime Snoopy. They're named by the color of their collars. So he was the first one rescued. Um, his real name is Jake. So he's Jake, the prime red Snoopy. And Jake, um, three weeks ago on our walk, managed to break his leg. How he did that, we don't know. Apparently greyhounds do that. They run very fast and then they turn too fast and they snap their bones in two. So Jake had to have a plate put in his leg and then he came home for a week and then he managed to break the titanium plate in half. So he's now spent another two weeks in the hospital having his leg pinned and plated. And now he is not allowed to go anywhere for another six weeks. So Jake I'm sure he's a... blaming you for that. Well, he has a cage, which you put him in if I have to go to work or whatever. I mean, there's always someone here on the farm, you know, and they let him out and he has walks and things. But they're also great howlers, the Snoopies. So when you put him in the cage, he howls. So um, whenever I'm here, I let him out and he lies by my side, but I have to prevent him from getting up or moving suddenly until the bone heals. So, yeah. Okay, so, so on behalf of everyone, sending lots of love and healing to all your Snoopies and to you. Mm. And then please tell us there are more books. Um, so while I'm still working and while I'm still working, I'm still writing. So it is true. There will be more books or at least oh. one more book. Uh, no, no, not more than one, and not only one book. <laughs> I'm, I'm getting that now. <laughs> I'm, I'm your editor day. and your publisher, we have to have more than one. It's like a drug. We've got to go to work with you every day. <laughs> well, they are, they, they, they sort of get interspersed with uh, various other things that I have to do. So every now and again, something comes along that has to be written down, and then sometimes I'll go a week or two without anything eventful. So that's, then we'll just see. But yes, definitely. So thank you so much um, for sharing your life with us in books and also in this interview. We are very grateful. And we wish you all the best as you go out and save lives and impact people. So thank you for that. Thank you. And thank you for the program and thank you for the interview. And Jake says hi. Hi, Jake, from all of us. We're sending you a big hug. Okay. All right. So you've been tuned to Healthcare Hour with Pauline Quist. Um, Please remember that you matter and that you're loved. And we look the home to of inspiration every every day. Most people give up on themselves easily. You know the human spirit is powerful. From news. Countries across the globe have been hit by the COVID-19 virus. Views. There's a global trend uh, to see an increase in GBV incidences, specifically domestic violence, violence, violence. Sports. What do you say? It's a really good ball. It's Shabalala. And music to inspire you every day. This is Vuga Online, your inspiration radio station. station. station.